Shalom, everyone. Uh, raise your hand if you're 18 years or younger here. 18 years or younger, raise them high. Raise them high if you are um, a parent of a child who's younger than 18. Okay. So normally when there are 18-year-olds or younger, sometimes they leave when, uh, when I give my sermon, and they should. Why should they have to go through more torture than being a teenager? Uh, but I'm going to ask a favor of all of you teenagers and young people here today. And that is, I'd like you to listen to what I have to say today more than usual. And I'd like you to try not to leave. And I'd like you to realize that some of the things we're going to talk about have some serious themes and some adult themes. But I'm talking to you and I'm talking to your parents as much as I'm talking to everyone else in the community on this Shabbat about the topic I want to share with you. So thank you in advance for suffering through and hopefully capturing some of the morals that we're after achieving today. To me, Judaism becomes most exciting when something modern interchanges with something of tradition and how it is that we address that modern phenomenon with the traditional phenomenon. For me, that's the reason I became a conservative rabbi versus an orthodox or reform rabbi because conservative Judaism was all about bridging the gap between what happens in the modern world and what happens in the Torah world. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. Anyone here, who's clearly over 18, who remembers, let's say, 1945, 1947, particular to 1951 in Long Island, a little town called Levittown. Anyone here from Levittown or friends from Levittown? One person. Okay, Robert, my main man, someone back there. What is Levittown known for? Good, Donna. It was the very first suburb in the United States of America. They said after the war that they were going to build these homes that had so many bedrooms and bathrooms and they were going to start commuting to work. And it became the first suburb in America. Today, we only know of suburbs. Very few people live in the city itself except in a handful of cities, but suburbs. Now, as a result of this phenomenon called the suburb, Judaism had to look through a unique lens as to what they were going to do to deal with people observing Shabbat and going to shul. Because if you're building a nice shul, let's say, where I grew up in Detroit, but people aren't living in Detroit anymore. They're moving to the suburbs like in Southfield and West Bloomfield, and there's now 8, 10, 12 miles between them and the shul. What happens? They have to drive to get to the shul, and that's considered a prohibition of Shabbat. So what did the conservative movement do? They put on the scales, the prohibition of driving versus the mitzvah of going to shul and be part of a community. And while both of them have very valuable, significant weight on those scales, they said for those who choose to go to shul because they're too far away, there's permissibility for them to drive only, only to and from shul. Now we could stand here and debate whether that was right or wrong. That's a, that's a sermon for a different date. But the idea is this is how they address that phenomenon of what it is to live in suburbia, but also be married to a tradition. So let's take something a little bit more modern. Maybe some of you kids here won't know this, but others will. Do you remember Napster? Napster is really the catalyst that changed the music industry forever. Because what Napster was, it was an open site on the internet that allowed people to log on as they chose and to download music for free. So if I bought a, I don't know, a Van Halen uh, uh, CD or tape and I put it up there on the internet, anyone else could log on and download the music. So now the people who own the music 
weren't getting paid for it. Because in the old days, before there was a Napster, before there was an internet, if I wanted a Van Halen CD, I had to go to the store and buy a Van Halen CD. Now there are very few music stores, it's all done online. But this all happened because this person came up with the idea of how it is you put music online and others can take it down. Now some believe that this was theft. So the question became, what do we do in Judaism to deal with the question of Napster? Well, this is where Judaism comes to life for me because we didn't have Napster in the time of the Bible and we didn't have it in the time of the Talmud. We didn't have it in the time of the Mishnah or in the Midrash. So we didn't have an exact paradigm, but we did have the notion of what it is to steal intellectual property in the Mishnah and in the Talmud and in the Midrash and even in the Bible. And through those tools and vehicles, we were able to decode how we should respond as Jews to a situation that is a new phenomenon because it has a paradigm. It has something that we can apply from before and make it applicable today. But what do we do when we can't do that with the law? Now we've done this with many other modern cases. We've done it in the last decade or two when it comes to issues of medical ethics and organ donations. We've done it on cars, we've done electricity on Shabbat. This wasn't an issue 200 years ago when there wasn't, 300 years ago, there wasn't any form of electricity. We've done it for other modern issues because it was considered inappropriate to pierce yourself or tattoo yourself, but what do you do when it becomes a modern style and it's not considered to be a defamation of your body? Now, there's always opinions on both sides for each of these issues. No matter what you do, You'll find people who say it's permissible to download from Napster and people who say it's not permissible. People who say it's permissible to drive on Shabbat and people who say you can't. People who say it's permissible to donate an organ to save a life and others who refuse it. That's the nature of Judaism. We're always gonna have people on different sides, but our Supreme Court is very similar to that as well. The way that we're wired as Americans is similar. But what do we do in a case that we have no precedent whatsoever for? That there's no paradigm whatsoever to follow. What do we do in those cases? How do we turn to a source when there's no model to follow, when it's making a law for us about modern times and how we respond Jewishly? Sadly, I think our world has come up with a situation and I don't know how to respond Jewishly because we've never, in my estimation, faced this situation before. The case I'm talking about is the sad and unfortunate case of the voyeur who captured Erin Andrews, the reporter, while she was alone in her hotel room. For those of you who don't know, Erin Andrews is a sideline reporter for major networks. She was at ESPN and then she was on Fox for a while. And a very talented journalist and a kind-hearted person who unfortunately had a stalker who followed her around. And the stalker faced financial troubles name was Michael David Barrett. And to address his financial troubles, what he decided to do was he decided to figure out a way to capture pictures and video of Erin Andrews when she was alone privately in her hotel room and to put them on the internet for sale. Now he tried selling them to certain sites and no one would buy them because they were afraid they would get sued or their ethical code didn't allow them. But after he ended up capturing these images and no one would buy them, to help with his financial woes, he just decided to press a button and put him on the internet so now the world could see it. Now in my estimation, what happened is criminal. 
Criminal because Erin Andrews was alone in her hotel room thinking that she was in a safe space and private. She had gotten changed for whatever it is she gotten changed and was disrobed in a moment of privacy like any and all of us would and could and should in our own rooms, our own homes, our own hotel rooms. And this sadistic mind altered her peephole, knowing in the room she was going to stay so that he could put up a device to capture her on multiple occasions. He ended up getting caught for stalking and for putting this online, and he had to serve three years in prison. But I don't think that's the right sentence. Because in my estimation, what happened to Aaron Andrews is rape. It's actually, in my estimation, it's worse than rape. And I don't mean to take away from anyone, God forbid, who was ever raped in their life. But allow me to explain why I believe this. Erin Andrews had her innocence taken from her. Someone violated her and took away something that she would normally keep to herself in private and took it for himself. But it became worse because God forbid, and I can never imagine anyone having to endure this. And for anyone who has, I am oh so sorry with the utmost of my empathy. But God forbid any human being is raped. It is a horrible act that begins and ends, and they live with the trauma and they live with the baggage for the balance of their life. There's no question about it. But the actual moment ends. But in the case of Erin Andrews, she was not only violated, but because it was put on the internet, it became viral. And literally thousands of people download this image every single day and the video, and it's as if she is being violated over and over and over and over again. It was so viral that when they were voir the jury for her case, there were so many jurors who were ineligible because they had seen the video. Think about that. Many jurors had to consider being recused because they had already seen the videos when they were voir them for the jury. That's how viral it had become. And each time some random stranger anywhere in the world downloads it, it's as if this violation is happening to her over again. So why is this different? You see, in Judaism, last week in particular, we had the case of the Egel Hazahav. We had the case of the golden calf. And the golden calf was a moment in time where the Israelites lost faith, and they collected all the gold, and they made an image to which they were going to bow down to. And then when Moses came down and broke the tablets, Everyone paused and realized what a crime they had done. And they had shuva, they had remorse and repentance. And they ended up burning down the calf and using the gold again, but not for its purpose, not for worshiping an idol. I remember a time when I was little and I lied to my father and I was riddled with guilt for so long and then apologized and remembered that the way to making it right was just to be honest forward. Or any of us who's ever stolen before, or cheated before, hopefully our good compasses always made us do the right thing and apologize for that which was wrong. And what happens if we put it into a Jewish category? What if I, I'm not a kosher person, but I decide to go eat a salad at a restaurant? In essence, I've kept kosher, even if it's not conscious. And if I eat a cheeseburger, I'm only sitting while I'm eating that cheeseburger, but not afterwards, and not when I'm not eating, and not when I'm eating something that fits into the category of kosher. It's the same thing. If 
I decide to drive on Shabbat without thinking about it. If I drive on Shabbat, I'm in the category of sinning for some who observe that way, let me be clear. But on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday when I drive, I'm not in that category. So there are moments in time where we are in the category of sinning, but at this moment, we're not in that category. In fact, none of you really are in a category right now of doing any form of sin. You're just sitting and listening to me, which might be a secular sin, but it's not a sin amongst Jewish law. So what happens when the sin that we commit is ongoing? You see, Judaism doesn't have any category that puts us into a sin mode that is ongoing. So let me give you one characteristical difference between us and Christianity. Some of you who are a little older in this room might have read an article in the 70s that was an interview with Jimmy Carter in Playboy, and I'm sure you just read it for the article. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and in that article, Jimmy Carter became famous for saying, I have lust in my heart, meaning that while he was married happily to Rosalind, he had been attracted to other human beings before. And that in Christianity is considered to be a sin. The entire time that he lusts another person without doing anything about it is a sin. But in Judaism, that's not a sin. Insofar that even for those who believe, which I don't, I want to be incredibly clear, but for those who believe homosexuality is a sin, the only sin even by the ultra-Orthodox that they would admit to and agree is the only sin is acting on your homosexuality, not thinking it or feeling it. Which tells us, again, that the moments of sin are categorical and time-bound. They're not ongoing and everlasting. So what do you do with the case of Michael David Barrett, who captured this human being and violated her and put it on the internet in a way that literally that act of sin that he caused is happening every single minute. It's three and a half years the right sentence? Is probation the right sentence? Is community service the right sentence? Jewishly, what do we say for such a human being? You can offer tshuva, but his act is continually creating this moment. It's like Lashon Hara on steroids. Lashon Hara is when we speak evil of somebody, and the horrible thing about speaking evil of someone is we knew even then that those words could be viral and it could spread. But what the internet has allowed us to do with these levels of violations and sin has been like Lashon Hara on steroids. And it has become out of control. I remember when I was in seventh grade in Detroit and one kid in my class decided to pull a prank on another kid where he put a Hershey's kiss on her seat with the intention of putting it on her seat. She sat on the Hershey's Kiss, and it melted, and she had a piece of chocolate stuck on her tuchus for the rest of the day. For about the first hour, all of us seventh graders laughed, and then some of her good friends took her to the bathroom and tried to get it off her pants, and she cried, and she was embarrassed, and the kid who did it got in trouble, and we all giggled, and by the next day, it was over. But what I worry about today is the kid who pulls the same prank and because I bet you all of you who are 10, 11, 12, 13 and up have at your access not only a phone but a camera, that you're clicking a picture of that and within seconds that picture is being uploaded to Facebook, to Twitter, 
to Instagram, to MySpace, to Snapchat, or whatever other medium you choose, and that abuse that's happening to that kid is no longer a moment in time, but it lives forever. It is viral. It is there always. And as Erin Andrews even said when she was on the witness stand, my husband, who I don't have yet, and my children, who aren't born yet, will know about this video. They will see this video because it's there forever because of the nature of the internet, because of the nature of social media, and because the nature of those who are abusing it are continuing this violation in an unending way for her. So she relives it each and every day, and I would even argue each and every minute. Frankly, my heart aches for her, but she's not the first one. And she's not even the first one I've spoken about from this Bema. Many of you remember about seven years ago, my rage when Tyler Clementi took his own life. The boy who had a very similar thing happen to him, where his classmate, who was so technologically savvy that he could configure a remote camera in his room to broadcast to everyone in the dorm of Tyler Clementi engaged in a physical intimate moment with another person, but he didn't know enough that the ethics said that was wrong. He knew how to do it technologically, but he didn't know ethically that it was a no-no. And the only reason, which is really painful for me to say, the only reason you and I know about Tyler Clementi is because he died. Because he decided that level of pain is gonna cause him to take his own life because he was savvy enough technologically to realize that this abuse would follow him every place he went. And he felt the only place he could escape to from there was to the George Washington Bridge. What a horrible reality. Why? Because our technological savvy and our ability to put things on the internet happens much faster than the code that we teach ethics to our children occurs. We have a whole new category for sinning, one that we've never ever addressed in Judaism before. It's called the perpetual and ongoing sinner. You see, in Judaism, we always, always give an avenue for someone to get out of doing wrong. We always give them the benefit of the doubt called shuva. The Sanhedrin in the Talmud teaches us that the great court of 71, if someone would come before them and all of the 71 judges found them guilty, the person would be set free because no case could ever be that clear cut, they told us. And furthermore, they said that when bringing a capital case before the Sanhedrin, you always started with the defense and not the prosecution. We know in our judicial system, we start with the prosecution and not the defense. So why do you start with the defense, they asked in the Talmud. And the answer was, because the burden is on the person who goes second, not first. So why do you wanna take the burden off of the defense and on to that of the prosecution? And the answer was as simple as all of us sitting here today. Because if a person was found guilty of a capital offense, they were sent to death. And death didn't mean sitting in jail for years and years with clemency. It meant sending them directly to their death within minutes. And the one major problem was sending them to their direct death was they didn't get an opportunity to make tshuva, to make repentance for that which they did wrong. And as a result of that act, the Talmud postured itself 
so that people could make tshuva, people could have an envelope for repentance for the wrong in which they did, which was a momentary act, regardless of how evil it was. But in the case of putting things on the internet, it's not momentary. It is ongoing and evergreen. And how do we as Jews categorize someone who sins by putting something on the internet that keeps the sin going forever and ever and ever? I share all this with you because as kids, you need to be aware of the choices that you're making. But equally and perhaps even more important as adults, you've got to make smart and responsible choices with your children. There's a whole growing movement today of parents that won't let their kids play at another kid's house if they know that the family has guns. They say, I'll let you go to Michael's house, I'll let you go to Timmy's house, I'll let you go to Annie's house, but if I know that they have guns in the house, I don't care where they're kept or how they're kept, we're not allowing you to go. This is a whole new movement happening. And why are they saying that? Because there is this ongoing phenomenon of kids getting guns and playing with them and someone getting killed. So there are parents all over the place now who are saying, if your children, if you have guns in your house, my kids aren't going to your house to play. They can come to my house and play, but they're not going to your house and play. And if we have a law that tells us when a sexual predator moves to a neighborhood, that all of us must know about it, where they are and where they live and what they're doing, we have to know about it. What laws are we implementing when we give a kid on their 11th birthday or 10th birthday an iPhone. What are we teaching them about consequences? What are we telling them about the category that they can put another person in and shaming them and embarrassing them and humiliating them in a way that can be evergreen and could always sting their heart? There's not a person in this room, not one human being in this room who hasn't been embarrassed before. It could be the most simple or idiotic moment in time, whether they couldn't hold in a bodily function or they said something silly or someone tripped them, whatever it is, we've all been embarrassed at some point in our life. And for those kids, they've had it happen. And for adults, they've had it happen. And the only thing that happens as an adult is sometimes, sometimes we gain enough courage and confidence that we can maneuver past it. But kids don't always have that confidence and kids don't always have that courage. So what ends up happening? So often, these moments, when they're captured and shown over and over and over and over again, takes kids into funks of depression that no 15-year-old should ever be in. No 16-year-old should have to talk at an assembly about what it's like to have their face cut off and superimposed on an image that isn't them and spread throughout the school and schools all over the country just to make someone laugh and giggle. Because that crime is not only a crime for the moment, it's a crime that is ongoing. And in the history of Judaism, I can think of no category where we are in constant state of committing a crime. There are moments where we commit crimes, but not a constant state. To me, this is a serious moment in time. And I wish that we had political leaders that were talking about these ethos instead of the size of their hands. And I wish we had leaders of faith 
that we're crafting a moral code along with concerned citizens to draft something that was universal for all people about ethics on the internet. So that if an 18-year-old is going to give a, be given a gun so that he or she can hunt, and they're taught all of the rules of how to keep this gun and treat this gun and keep this gun safely. And if we're going to talk to kids about who it is we should avoid because of their histories, shouldn't we be having a serious conversation in an ongoing manner and even some oversight on what our children are doing on the internet and what's happening on the internet? Because it's just as lethal as giving our kids car keys or perhaps even a bullet and a revolver. I want to close my remarks today with a moment of empathy and compassion for a person I've never met in Aaron Andrews. But on this Shabbat, as it has for the last weeks, my heart has ached for her as a victim. And all of us, we're Jewish or Christian or atheist, all of us should feel a deep sense of empathy for this innocent human being that was violated in a way that none of us should ever know from. And my prayer is twofold. My prayer is that God and the world's compassion give her strength to believe in the good of humanity again. And that same energy of empathy and compassion, may it be focused on changing these values and the way in which we talk to our kids about the internet, the way that we model the viral nature of the internet and the way even legislation happens about the internet so that no other victims have to go to bridges or have to see psychiatrists because of depression or have to sue hotels because of their violation, that we can adjust this part through our ethics and our standards. May we find our strength.